0: reason why we say Revolution Institute is because the changes that we're talking about being necessary are fundamental and not simply tinkering with the system that we have. Welcome to the Lions of Liberty podcast. Here's your host, your guide, your shining beacon
1: of liberty, Mark Claire. Welcome back, Liberty Liaisons to the Lions of Liberty podcast, your home for great conversations about the ideas of liberty. You have found yourself here today listening to the 223rd episode of this program. And that means you can find today's show notes featuring links to everything we discuss over at lionsofliberty.com slash 223. The show is sponsored today by our good friends at Health Excellence Select, who have put together the ultimate free market solution for your health care needs Find out more at lionsofliberty.com/slash health. My guest today is the Tax Watch Project Director at the Tax Revolution Institute, a nonpartisan 501c3 pending organization committed to promoting transparency, accountability, and integrity at all levels of the U.S. tax system. Good luck, right? He is Adam D'Angeli. Adam, are you ready to roar? Ready to roar, Mark. All right, man. Great. Now, Adam, we've been trying to set this interview up for a while, a little behind the scenes here for the listeners, but it's an important topic. It's an important issue. And I'm really going to get into what you guys are doing at Tax Revolution Institute in a minute. But I want to learn a little bit more about yourself first. So why don't you just kind of start off telling everybody how you got involved in kind of politics in the first place? What sort of set you down the political path to even a point where you end up caring about these issues?
0: Well, I first got involved uh, with the Ron Paul presidential campaign in 2008, first as a volunteer and then as a staff doing technical work for them. and then I ran a state campaign for the Ron Paul campaign in 2012 and that really got me into libertarian philosophy and I've been working in politics ever since on candidates and campaigns and uh, Tax Revolution Institute's a very new organization and they called me in to basically head up their Tax Watch project in their inaugural year which is now.
1: And how did they uh, find you? I mean, did you actually have a, a lot of experience on the sort of tax side of things during your sort of your, your
0: last few years of political activism? Well, not so much taxes as political project management. And I'd gotten uh, to know our executive director, Dan Johnson, was involved with uh, opposing the uh, certain amendment to the National Defense Authorization Act that really infringes on American civil liberties. So I known him through that. And then uh, Dan had gotten involved in this project. And uh Invited me to interview with them, and I uh, you know, went over my credentials and having – actually, I did do one tax fight here in Michigan last year. We had a ballot initiative on this entire statewide ballot to raise the state sales tax a percentage point, and we defeated that by historic margins. So I did a little bit of tax advocacy on that, and I also had worked in the state legislature here in Michigan, and I also did a year on Capitol Hill doing uh, various policy work for lawmakers. So I got to know a little bit about the policymaking process uh, there, too. So you've been around the
1: political block a little bit here, and you've gotten a chance to sort of see the inner workings of how these things happen, of how legislation gets passed, of how, you know, regulations get put into place. And uh, my man, Dan Johnson, who has been a guest on the show, I don't know if you know, Dan is actually one of the very first guests ever on this program about two and a half years ago. And uh, he's been on a couple times, both to talk about the NDAA and his organization, the Solutions Institute. And now he is involved with the Tax Revolution Institute. I do not know how this man finds time to eat or sleep or do anything but political activism because he is absolutely everywhere, Dan Johnson. So uh, one of the most uh, remarkable activists out there. Oh, yeah,
0: he's a very busy man.
1: So you might just hear the name of the Tax Revolution Institute and immediately think that its sole purpose is, uh, you know, to be against the income tax and to sort of be a, an IRS watchdog, and those are certainly going to be elements of I think your this institute as it grows. But this institute was actually started for a very specific purpose in response to uh, you know a very specific piece of legislation. So why don't you just go ahead and describe that for everybody and and why it's so important to the point that an entire organization was started specifically just to to fight this?
0: Well, I think we are going to be looking at a lot of the broader issues with the IRS, and I think the reason why we say Revolution Institute is because the changes that we're talking about being necessary are fundamental and not simply tinkering with the system that we have. But the issue that we're taking on right now as a first priority is a proposed federal regulation to be issued by the IRS that would dramatically repress political speech in America. And it's vastly far-reaching, affecting Initially, it was proposed only to address those organizations that are either political in nature or are what are called social welfare organizations. Now, the IRS is talking about applying this to the entire set of nonprofit organizations across the board, including charities and schools and churches. And what they're actually proposing is basically to broaden the definition of electioneering, which nonprofits either can't do at all or are restricted in what they do, to include so much more than what it actually means as to sweep in literally any mention of a politician in any context whatsoever. So so let's just pause right there for a second, just for people that might not be familiar with the term. What is the, I
1: guess, the current accepted standard for what qualifies as electioneering?
0: Well, what electioneering means is to actively work to influence the outcome of a particular election. And what the courts have held that to mean is when you're actually doing something that is nothing but unmistakably that. And so if I say vote for so-and-so, that would be considered electioneering, or sometimes they use the term express advocacy. However, if I was to say something like so-and-so voted against auditing the Federal Reserve, that's not considered electioneering. That's considered issue discussion, that's considered reporting, and so on. So that is not considered electioneering and therefore could not be regulated by the Election Commission, for a news foundation to report a fact would not be considered influencing an election. Under this rule, all of that would apply, even to the point where if I was to say, you know, Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump are two candidates for president of the United States, that would be considered electioneering, just by virtue of having just said Just stating
1: that. The, the facts of the day, even. Not even supporting a candidate or not would, would even qualify as electioneering?
0: Right. It's bizarre how far-reaching they've chosen to define this. And the reason why we suspect is, and actually there's evidence of this, is a response to this whole scandal at the IRS of them improperly targeting political organizations for additional scrutiny. And this was a big disaster for the IRS. A lot of people uh, had to resign and they issued a report saying, you know, what was wrong? What can we do about this? And what they basically came up with was, among other suggestions, was, you know, if everything that these guys were doing was illegal, there'd be no ambiguity and therefore we wouldn't get in trouble again. So it seems to us that the major reason the IRS of all people is pushing for this rule is not because they actually necessarily want to, in, to repress political speech, but they want to provide legal cover for themselves. But that's far beyond what the rulemaking process was ever designed for.
1: So, Adam, you're using the term rule there. So is this just something that can be changed by the whim of regulators or people within the IRS,
0: or is this something that would have to be done by lawmakers? It would be done by the IRS. The way it works is the federal rules and regulations are meant to clarify when the law is not specific. And, of course, the, the government's in all of our business all the time in every which way, and that's terrible. But, of course, they can't literally write down every little thing. So you have the Code of Federal Regulations on top of everything that Congress does. Now, if Congress passes a law, a rule can't contradict it. But there is no specific definition in law, at least not in the laws of Congress. There is in Supreme Court rulings defining what electioneering means. So the IRS is attempting to sort of what they call clear this ambiguity out when in actual fact, nonprofit organizations have been operating under the guidelines developed in light of the Supreme Court ruling where they define what electioneering means for many years. There hasn't really been any ambiguity on their part. It's just that the IRS wants there to be no ambiguity for them anymore.
1: So, what are some of the real-world consequences that you guys foresee if this rule actually, you know, becomes? I don't want to say law because I hate calling something like this a law that's clearly not passed by any elected officials. But I mean, what kind of effects will this have on organizations that engage in sort of political activism?
0: Well, without question, the groups that feel the worst outcomes of this are the actual groups that are involved in the public policymaking process, and that means groups like, for example. Uh, Campaign for Liberty, or other groups that would actually try to pass and defeat legislation. Because an essential part of that process is actually reporting how politicians vote when votes come up. And that's the way that the public is informed what's going on, and that's the way the public impresses upon the lawmakers what they need to do and how they ought to vote. So taking away that ability from groups that need it in order to actually function to advocate for policy changes would basically silence them. And the same applies even more dramatically for nonprofit educational institutions. So for example, groups that don't actually lobby to pass legislation but simply recommend things, think tanks and uh, you know, policy centers that analyze things, and groups like the League of Women Voters that report how politicians vote, they would all be basically shut down from any of those activities. And that is a real concrete inhibition on their First Amendment rights to inform the public about what's going on and what policies affect their lives. But secondly, because the rule is written so broadly, just the legal exposure caused by how easy it would be to inadvertently infringe on this new definition of electioneering poses real legal risk for nonprofits as well. I'll give you an example. See, what the rule would actually do, because it says Any communication from a group that names a candidate during election season is electioneering. And they even went on to say, we are also talking about anything that's on your website that might happen to remain there. So if you have something on your website that names somebody for whatever reason, and then unbeknownst to you, they run for office somewhere in in another part of the country. It can be a local race. It can even be, in some cases, a private election because it covers party offices, too. If you don't know that they're running for office and then search and destroy anything on your website that references them, you could be in violation. So it's absolutely wild what they've come up with here. And to the point where actual full compliance is impossible. It's not realistic for any nonprofit organization, especially an organization that might have a lot of content, such as, you know, a university, a research institution, a news foundation, these are all organizations that would face terrible legal exposure if the rule was passed and imposed on them. So they essentially can't even basically
1: name a politician, I guess, under this rule. So, I mean, for example, the NDAA organization Panda that Dan Johnson started, if this rule was passed, they would be in danger of even being able to point out that politician X supported you know, some rule or some bill that sort of uh, you know, enhanced or certified indefinite detention and that kind of thing. That sort of
0: speech would be fall under this? Precisely. And of course, who benefits from this more than the politicians themselves that now people aren't being critical of them?
1: Wow, that's really amazing. And what are the punishments for electioneering? Like if they did decide to to pass this broad rule and actually go out and enforcing it in what seems like such an absurd way, but the way they're writing it, they absolutely could do that. What are some of the punishments associated with that?
0: Well, first of all, even before any actual punishments, just being investigated can be intrusive can be expensive, can be distracting and uh, distressing for any organization. But secondly, once actually pursued, an organization losing its nonprofit status can be fatal. The nonprofit community has been developed over a period of decades. And when you take away their nonprofit status, suddenly the whole direct mail fundraising program suddenly becomes no longer viable. Because if you lose your nonprofit status, you also lose your nonprofit postal rates. It means layoffs. It means an inability to act effectively. And for an organization that depends on, you know, that's actually on the margin with their funds, it can be fatal. So, yeah, it can be, on one hand, a constant in the back of your mind threat that this might come up sometime and to the point where if you're actually targeted for enforcement, it can be devastating.
1: Could this even reach into organizations that aren't normally political that we might not think of? Like just say a charitable organization that delivers food to people. I mean, are there things that they normally do now that might even be able to fall under this kind of rule?
0: Oh, absolutely. If an organization gives someone a philanthropist of the year award and, you know, next year a retiring mayor says, I recommend that guy run to replace me. The rule actually says even someone... What's their term? Proposed for office. That counts, too. So... That could even not be a candidate. Right. It's even been suggested that anyone... It's actually in the draft legislation of the rule. Yes, a candidate proposed for office counts as a candidate. Whatever that means. And again, subject to the interpretation of the IRS and subject to the interpretation of the courts. That is just unbelievable. Yeah, it's very bizarre how far they would go with this. But even if they were to whittle it down to... Just the political organizations, just the activist groups, those groups have a right to advocate for policy changes. And the nonprofit community is the basis for civil society in America. I mean, they are the only bodies besides the actual for-profit companies who, of course, have a vested stake in, in legislation. They're the only body of organizations that actually represents the public good. And we might not agree with one group or the other's position on what that means, But as a whole, when you clamp down on the speech of that community, the political space is left with the candidates, the parties, the PACs, the lobbyists, all the groups who have the least interest in these issues and the least interest in the public good.
1: Adam, we're going to continue to discuss the plan that tax revolution has to combat this rule in just a minute. But first, I need to take a little time out to tell our listeners about a new plan for their health care from our friends at Health Excellence Select. You know, I'm a freelancer and I purchased my own health insurance and I was hit by some serious sticker shock after the implementation of Obamacare. My premiums and deductibles were skyrocketing. And as someone who keeps myself pretty healthy, I knew that I was getting a raw deal for a product I simply didn't want. This caused me to seek an alternative and I found an amazing alternative in the form of health sharing, a killer concept where healthy individuals agree to share their medical costs. That's right. It's a voluntary free market system for paying for your health care that also, thanks to an exemption, covers the Obamacare mandate. Our friends at Health Excellence Select have kicked it up a notch by creating a full service package to handle all of your health care needs. Trust me, I'm not just a proponent of health sharing. I'm also a client. This has been one of the greatest things I've ever done to leave the Obamacare system in favor of what our friends at Health Excellence Select are doing. To learn more, head over to lionsofliberty.com health. And don't hesitate to give my man Jeff Cantor a call at 440-283-684. Nine, be sure to mention Lions of Liberty. How does the Tax Revolution Institute propose to actually fight this? Because, I mean, when there's legislation involved, you can just lobby your congressman and say, don't pass this law, don't pass that law. But this is actually just a rule that the IRS is intending to make or pr- proposing to make. So, how can you actually fight people that were really unaccountable in the electoral system?
0: Well, you still can work through Congress, because if Congress passes a law to prevent the rule from being implemented, then the IRS can't do it. And as a matter of fact, fortunately, Congress has actually been defunding the IRS from implementing this rule. The concern that we have is that these defunding measures are always temporary, and therefore, as the IRS has said, they still want to pursue this, so it might come back up again at any time. Right now, the prohibition expires the end of this September. So we're urging people to advocate that Congress actually pass legislation to put into the code what electioneering means. It should be in the election code, basically to codify the Supreme Court case, which was where they said it means it's a bright line test of express advocacy and uh, therefore prevent the IRS preemptively from defining it differently. So, Adam, we kind of uh, we've gone
1: over this rule. I, I don't know how much more we can talk about this one issue, but it is the most important one because if this passes, I mean, the Tax Revolution Institute might not even exist to you know pursue a larger mission. But I do want to discuss that a little bit. So, what is some of the larger mission beyond this rule? Hopefully, you guys can keep this thing at bay permanently. Hopefully, if we can actually get a bill passed of some kind. But what is the, a larger goal that you see of, of the Tax Revolution Institute? What are some larger issues with our tax code that you? Guys Guys plan to pursue in the future.
0: Well, it's hard to know where to start with that one because there's, of course, so much. I mean, the tax code in general is, you know, enormously arbitrary and unfair and burdensome and expensive, and of course, enforcement is uh, really, really awful in the way people's constitutional rights are trampled on, that they aren't treated as well. Let me explain. When in criminal law you have certain rights as a defendant. In civil law, like if you, one person sues another, you have equal footing, right? But when the government sues you in civil court, you have all the burdens of being a defendant in a criminal trial. The punishment can be just as bad as in any criminal trial. But yet you don't have the rights that you have in a criminal case, such as the presumption of innocence. So we think the first thing that we need to look at with the IRS is ways in which people's constitutional rights are being violated. And that includes things like civil asset forfeiture abuse, where the IRS is able to confiscate people's property and money without having proven them guilty of anything and left it to them to prove their innocence. Uh, It means simplifying the tax structures that people aren't paying more just in compliance costs than they are in taxes themselves. But obviously, that's a very, very complicated thing to begin going about doing. So I think what Tax Revolution Institute seeks to do is to expose some of the worst problems with the IRS and how their actions impact people and disregard the constitutional rights and come at it from that angle. And then looking at that, trying to find some way that we can simplify the tax code and uh, change the enforcement mechanism so that people's rights are protected and that we have a tax system that actually works the way we would imagine one would, which is that it simply collects, you know, a portion of people's money for whatever services the government deems absolutely necessary. And, of course, there's a lot of questions about what exactly the scope of government should be. At TRI, we want to focus more about the IRS and about enforcement and, and really stick to the question of what people's rights are. So that's what our focus is going to be on down the road. Yeah, because
1: in tax court, I mean, like you said, you're not presumed innocent. You're actually presumed guilty, essentially. You have to go out of your way to find the evidence to disprove whatever the IRS is claiming about what you owe them or, or whatever you know malfeasance they're charging you with. You have to find a way to prove yourself innocent, which is literally the exact opposite of the way our criminal justice system is supposed to work.
0: Right. I mean, the horror stories are endless with people who have been gone after by the government because... The fact is, if they want to destroy you, they can, and there's nothing you can do about it. They can destroy you just with court costs alone. And there's no remedy for it because the money just comes from the American taxpayers.
1: Now, Adam, as you know, there's a popular phrase, a popular meme that goes around known as taxation is theft. So I got to ask – Do you guys at Tax Revolution Institute, and maybe you can't speak for the Institute, maybe you can just speak for yourself here, but I mean, do you believe taxation is theft? How far do you go with the the revolution against our current tax system?
0: Well, you know, that's my personal opinion, but uh, I can't comment on the Tax Revolution Institute's head towards taxation in general. I don't know that the American people all see it the same way. I think a lot of people are of the belief that uh, there's no other way that we can fund things that we need. And so TRI is not interested in challenging that position just now, we think the most important thing right now is to start with what people agree on and can bite into, which is that the system as it is right now is uh, absolutely not fair to the individual and certainly not to, to the defendants. I mean, yeah, as far as the question of, because if taxation is theft, then obviously what the IRS is doing is inherently wrong. I don't think that's the case we want to make right now because it, it undermines, you know, all the stuff that I just went over because if the IRS can, you know, if we should say, well, the IRS should just be abolished completely well, then why nitpick at this little issue? And our perspective is because the IRS is doing things that are well beyond even what its constitutional authority is. I mean, what it's doing now is essentially overruling Congress and the courts, which in a lengthy process have deliberated what different types of nonprofit organizations can and can't be able to do. So, yeah, I mean, personally, I have to admit, since you asked me, I do think taxation is theft, but That's an opinion that uh, I'm not sure TRI shares as a whole, and I don't want to represent that uh, to the public. Gotcha, right, because, I mean, the
1: despite our philosophical you know, beliefs about certain things and whatever members of that organization might hold, you do have some very specific political goals as well and maybe putting out some of that philosophy can actually harm some of those political goals and, and harm the legitimacy of the organization overall And when there are so many very serious and very near problems that can be addressed such as this rule that that we've been discussing here today. So I think that's a, definitely a fair point of view for the, uh, the organization to take as a whole. Before I let you go, Adam, why don't you just kind of give me a summary of maybe a little bit more about Tax Revolution Institute, how people can get more involved with it, how people can get involved with combating this rule on their own and through you guys as well.
0: Well, the best thing to do is to sign up on our website, which is taxrevolution.us. And from there, people can receive email alerts from us about what's going on with pending legislation. I mean, there's an ongoing number of issues with tax policy in Congress all the time. And what TRI does is we monitor... What's going on in Congress, what's going on at the IRS, and report on the latest developments in policy and sometimes in politics about these different things. And then, you know, we encourage people to get involved, to contact Congress, and especially to contact people they know affiliated with nonprofit organizations and direct them to take action. Because the nonprofit community in this country is absolutely enormous, it includes literally millions of organizations. And together, They clearly have the critical mass you would need to address the issue with Congress. So the best thing to do is go to taxrevolution.us, get informed. You can download our full report, which goes into amazing details about how this rule came about and what exactly it does, and uh, learn more and get involved. That's the best thing they could do. And join our coalition about this, too, because we are working to build a coalition of organizations that oppose this rule, and they can find out more about that on our website, too. Yeah, that's a good point because
1: regardless of um, the political beliefs of any organization out there that this would fall under, which is essentially every non-for-profit organization, uh, I think that's an excellent point of building a coalition here because you know you might have you know thoughts about philosophy and political goals outside of what tax revolution is talking about and outside of this specific rule. But when it comes to this specific rule, this is something that every single nonprofit should be able to get behind and come together for. So I think that's a very important. Yeah, absolutely. It's a nonpartisan issue. All right. Well, Adam DeAngeli, thank you so much for coming on the show today to discuss this very important rule. We're going to do our part to get the word out there about this because it certainly is frightening. It's a terribly frightening attack on free speech in this country, and uh, something like this is just—it's uh, one of those lines in the sand that just cannot be allowed to go unchallenged. I appreciate it, Mark. Thanks for having me. Thanks, Adam. All right, guys. I hope you enjoyed my conversation there with Mister Adam DeAngeli. A guy who's out there busting his hump to try to create a little more fairness in our system and in the short term protect the rights, the free speech rights of organizations out there who are trying to create political change. Because if the IRS implements this rule, it will effectively ban political speech. I mean, there's no other way to put it. It'll ban the political speech of so many organizations that are out there trying to create political change, not just liberty organizations, organizations of all ilks. And this is really one of those issues that you can reach out to your liberal friends on, your progressive friends, your far-right friends, whoever, and say, hey, guys, I know we, we don't agree on everything, but look at this. Look at what the IRS is doing. Look at what they're trying to do here. This is something that's clearly wrong and is clearly going to hamper the speech of so many organizations. So this really is a uniting issue. It should be anyway. You know, whereas we may argue about taxes all day long with our Republican friends and our Democrat friends, and they may have completely, vastly different views on the legitimacy of taxation than many who listen to this program do. But regardless of our views on taxation, and I've got my own, of course, regardless of our views on these things, this is one where we just can't mess around, all right? This is one that is so clear-cut that anybody, any political activist whatsoever, should be able to get behind the idea of keeping this rule from being put into place. So please do head over to taxrevolution.us. Please do find more about how you can spread the word about this and how you can help the fine folks at Tax Revolution create a little political change of their own. Now, guys, I feel a little bit of a rant coming here. But before I get to that, I want to invite you to come rant with us by joining our private Facebook group, the Lions of Liberty Forum. If you just type that in your little Facebook search bar, Lions of Liberty Forum, it should pop right up, request to join, and as soon as I check you out to make sure you're not some kind of spam bot, I'll let you right in to join this conversation. You can also follow our main Facebook page, facebook.com slash lionsofliberty, where we'll post all of our podcasts, all of the show notes you can find linked there, and you can, of course, find us on the Twitter find us on Twitter and tweet to us over at Lions of Liberty. Now when it comes to the subject of taxes, it's always a difficult one for libertarians so maybe not always. you know a lot of libertarians out there will just say taxation is theft, taxation is theft end of the issue. Well, it's not the end of the issue because while I have a certain amount of appreciation for the taxation is theft concept, It doesn't really tell anybody anything. It doesn't really explain why we feel taxation is theft in many circumstances and address the reality of how things would be funded. Now, a lot of people might think, no, taxation is not theft because we get all these services for it. Well, that's obviously not a legitimate argument. (laughs) You know, if a mugger comes up to me and asks me for all my money, asks me. If he's pointing a gun at me and demands all my money and I give it to him, it doesn't really matter if he uses some of that money to, you know, come over to my house and throw me a birthday party. I mean, I might think it was a fun party, but at the end of the day, he still stole my money. He still held me up. So obviously what the money is being used for is not a legitimate argument argument. The reason many libertarians see taxation as theft is because they don't consent to the taxes, especially when it comes to our income taxes and the current taxation scheme. I mean, I say scheme because it really is a scheme. It's nearly impossible to comply with all the tax regulations. It's nearly impossible for anyone with a remotely complicated uh, income stream. I mean, I have multiple income streams. I need to hire a professional to do my taxes because there are just so many different little loopholes and different little taxes and different little forms to fill out for different things. I mean, it's nearly impossible for someone like myself unless I invested tens and tens and hours of time to really do the thorough work it would need to fill out my taxes. Now, to me, a system like that is clearly tyrannical. It's tyrannical because it's not easy to navigate. You can navigate this tax system if you're a major corporation. and You can hire an army of lawyers to figure out, you know, all the little loopholes you need to get around to make sure you're someone like GE that ends up with literally paying no taxes at the end of the day. If you're a guy making 10, 12 bucks an hour, I mean, I don't even know how you're gonna afford to hire an accountant, let alone, you know, find a way to navigate this tax code and pay your quote-unquote fair share of taxes. Now, the reason the taxation is theft meme is just a little too simple for me is because, well, look, a lot of the services, quote-unquote, that we get do need to be provided in life by somebody. Now, obviously, many libertarians are going to disagree with the current structure, the coercive nature of our system, the income tax. I'm not in favor of the income tax for the reasons I just stated. It's incredibly complicated. It also presumes that the government has a right to your labor. They're taking a percentage of your labor, of your life. However, in any society, a quote-unquote free society, being no exception, we're going to have a judicial system. Or at least we should. We're going to have police. We're going to have Fire trucks. We're going to have roads. Many libertarians make excellent arguments for ways in which these services could be provided through voluntary organizations, through cooperation, through that sort of thing. I'm all for these things. However, we're not going to get to a place where we have voluntary funding of these services tomorrow. There's a legitimate need for the government to take in some amount of revenue to perform these basic services so long as they hold a monopoly on them. We can't just ignore the fact that the way our society is currently built, it's going to require some source of funding. Now, I appreciate the fact that many libertarians are out there coming up with alternative methods of taxation, or not even taxation, methods of funding, I should say. Whether it's crowdfunding, Austin Peterson has brought up the concept of lotteries. Now, I'm not a big fan of the lottery system right now because the state will ban gambling while running their own lottery system. Now, that's a sham. But just the concept of a lottery system in itself, in order to raise funds, there's nothing wrong with that. That can be a voluntary method of raising funds. There are a lot of ways we can move society to do this. But unless we're presenting those options to people and advancing that conversation, just simply saying taxation is theft, well, I'm just not so sure that that really teaches anybody anything about libertarian ideas. I could be wrong. I could be totally wrong here. But I really feel that as libertarians, as people that are against the use of force, we can't just – also neglect to address how our current society is structured. And I think that's a, it can be a fine line to walk, but we can do both. You can remain principled, point out what's wrong and still say, okay, but here's why the income tax is really bad. (laughs) Here's why the IRS is really bad, because I just can't think of a worse system of taxation than the income tax, than the IRS, than this tyrannical system that we have now. So yeah, I'm with you guys. I want a system where all of this stuff is funded voluntarily. But in the meantime, my God, let's focus on the important things. Let's A, not let the IRS clamp down on free speech. And B, let's end the IRS. Let's end the IRS. End income taxation. These are achievable political goals. I actually believe that. I actually believe we could achievably end the income tax, end the IRS in my lifetime but I don't think we'll be able to end all coercive taxation in my lifetime. So that's the way I view that. Maybe I'm wrong. If I'm wrong, come on over to the Lions of Liberty Forum and tell me why. Or you can even email me, mark, M-A-R-C, at lionsofliberty.com. And bitch me out in private. I'm cool with that too. Whatever you guys got to do to advance this conversation, because that's what I'm continuing to do here three times a week, Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. You can find a new episode of Lions of Liberty, of course, Friday, being hosted by my good friend and associate, John Odermatt, his weekly look at the criminal justice system. You're going to get another one of those this coming Friday. So tune on in for that. And until next time, my friends, live long and live free.